Revelation 1, beginning with verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. When you heard that I'd be starting a series in the book of Revelation, what was your initial reaction? Now, some of you were excited for one of three reasons. You're either a weirdo, if you're an Alex Jones fan and love global conspiracies, you fit into this first category. Or maybe you were homeschooled or really isolated from the world as you grew up. In fact, if you have a complete collection of all 16 Left Behind books, that's likely you. Or you're excited about this series because you're kind of a freak and you're morbid. Like you, you find gory movies filled with blood and death and destruction and zombies or the apocalypse, wildly entertaining. And you're like, yes, a book of the Bible where like people die. <laughs> so some of you are excited. Now, the truth, and I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb when I say this, that while you may be interested in what I have to say, which is why you're here or watching online, the majority of you, again, going out on a limb, the majority of you, really aren't that excited about this series. And if that's you, don't worry. I'm right there with you. In fact, if you had told me a year ago, when we were just a few studies into our series through the book of Leviticus, that Revelation would be on the 2020 docket, I'd said you were completely nuts. My first experience with the book of Revelation was back in 1993. I was 10, and for whatever reason, I had to spend an evening at the church with my dad. At the time, Calvary Chapel, which is the church my dad still pastors to this day, was located in a little building on 2nd Street, right in the heart of downtown Stone Mountain. Seeing that I was bored, he suggested I sit in the secretary's office and read my Bible while he took care of a few meetings. Now, unsure where to exactly begin I landed on the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind, I was in fourth grade with a decent level of reading comprehension, you know, for my age. But in retrospect, with kind of its PG-13 rating, the book of Revelation was a terrible place for a 10-year-old to read. Roughly an hour or so, my dad came through the office briefcase in tow, telling me it's time to head home. When I didn't answer, he found me hiding under Miss Judy's desk in tears. Zach, what's wrong? He asked. Dad, I'm scared. The world's going to end. A quarter of the population is going to die. All the vegetation's going to be burned up. All the seas will be turned to blood, killing all the fish, Dad. There's not going to be any fresh water for anyone to drink. Dad, war is coming. The Antichrist is going to behead anyone who doesn't take the mark of the beast. I was worked up. 
My dad looked at me a bit perplexed. Zach, what have you been reading? I replied, the book of Revelation. At that point, my dad, he calmly helped me out from under the desk. We turned off the lights, locked the front door, loaded up in his 85 Corolla to make our way home. And as we were doing such, he began to explain to me that while all of the things I had read were indeed going to happen, Jesus was going to rapture the church first. Zach, because you've given your heart and life to Jesus, you won't even be here to experience all of these terrible things. To be honest with you, though I took solace in that reality, that night, as I tried to fall asleep, I was still completely freaked out. Like, I didn't understand why God was going to judge the world in such a a dramatic way. I was worried about those I knew who might be left behind. In fact, as I continued to think about these things, I decided, was convinced, really, that I needed at least one friend who wasn't a Christian. I reasoned that since they wouldn't be raptured, I would have at least one friend who could come over and let my poor dog out of the house so she wouldn't starve to death. I was making plans. Aside from this, and you're unlikely to hear a pastor make such a confession, but here goes. I remember, even at the age of 10, actively praying against the rapture. Yes, I love Jesus. Sure, heaven sounded cool. (laughs) At least cooler than hell. Aside from all these things, like I wanted Jesus to just, you know, maybe pump the brakes. Jesus, could you just wait a little while? I mean, there's so much life that I'd like to live, to experience first. And then when I'm like old, 40, with kids, then you can rapture us. Can you relate? My second experience with the book of Revelation came as a 16-year-old. 1999 was about to give way to 2000. And the entire world was geeked up over Y2K. All the computer systems that controlled everything from banking to air travel to the nuclear stockpile. All those computer systems, they were going to crash. The very moment their internal time sequences flipped to double zero. To make the entire situation all the more stressful, prominent church leaders were warning at the time that biblical prophecy indicated Our New Year's Eve party was going to end in the rapture. Again, while we were supposed to be excited about that, right? I remember asking Jesus again, Lord, could you just hold off my reason? I didn't want to spend all of eternity a virgin. It's true. Clearly, God answered my prayers. Y2K came and went, without incident, really. The church wasn't raptured to heaven. At least I'm pretty sure it wasn't. And you know, the clock struck midnight. We were okay. And as a teenager, again, 16, I recall thinking to myself that night how absolutely silly all of these things made Christians look. Getting worked up about these things made us look like kind of tinfoiled hat conspiracy theorists. And I blamed... All of that on the church's obsession with the book of Revelation. 
Over the last 20 years, I've personally studied the book of Revelation in great detail. It's become a hobby. I've taken a collegiate class on the book, kind of. I slept through most of it. It was early Friday mornings. I've read through several of the most trusted, comprehensive, respected commentaries. I've listened to more than a dozen complete expositions. I've even taught through the book twice as a youth pastor. Once was a complete verse-by-verse study. The other, we taught through the entire book of Revelation in one week-long beach retreat. While I've come to greatly appreciate the book of Revelation and what it has to say, just being real, my greatest hesitation in teaching it from this pulpit centers on the fact that I believe the book has been used in the past to address real cultural issues really poorly. As a result of the way the book of Revelation has been used by evangelicals, I believe we've distorted, in a lot of ways, the purpose of the Revelation itself, and in turn, fostered a perception that Christians are nothing more than escapists. Now, in order to explain what I mean, and in doing so, establish why I do believe it's vitally important we study this book in such a day, while prayerfully demonstrating how our approach will be different, and so you don't have to worry. I do need to take some time and kind of unpack for you the interesting and complex history that American culture has had with the book of Revelation. I know our world seems chaotic. And who knows what the next nine years of this decade holds. But let's be honest. The 1960s proved to be one of the most difficult 10-year stretches in American history. First, the military was quagmired in Vietnam, giving rise to the anti-war movement. While Bob Dylan sang in protest, Muhammad Ali sat in a cell over his refusal to be drafted. Thousands would take to the streets to make their voices heard in protest. Aside from this, racial tensions were at the forefront of the national consciousness. In 64, the Civil Rights Act passed, expanding voting rights for blacks, ending discrimination in the workplace, and forcing schools to desegregate. Sadly, these deep-seated cultural divisions between races were not aided at all by the reverse racism of the black power movement and later the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and MLK uh, and, and Malcolm X. In spite of the progress, the 1960s saw increased violence, riots, cities burning, and an explosion of crime in urban communities. Any of this sound familiar? While all of these things were taking place, the culture itself was also experiencing revolutionary times. Disillusioned with the status quo, high school and college-age kids were breaking from the the long-held norms and traditions of their parents. The black and white world of the 1950s transformed into a kaleidoscope of colors in the 60s. Cotton trousers were exchanged for polyester bell-bottoms. Leave it to Beaver for I Dream of Jeannie. With Elvis Presley busy attempting to make a career in film, America changed. On February 7, 1964, 
when Beatlemania officially swept the country. From there in 66, Hendrix shared a stage with Cream, probably the greatest collection of musicians ever. By the late 60s, Pink Floyd, Jefferson Airplane, and the Grateful Dead had taken psychedelic rock mainstream. And along with the music came an explosion of drug use, which ultimately gave rise to a sexual revolution that exchanged monogamy for free love. In the midst of a culture in flux, the growing confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union was an inescapable part of everyone's life. Both of these superpowers were rapidly developing their nuclear stockpile, all the while attempting to expand their strategic alliances and ideologies around the globe. The space race dominated politics, consumed national budgets. There was an explosion of debt. In 61, the USSR successfully put a man in space. Eight years later, in 1969, the United States planted our flag on the moon. In October of 62, a missile crisis 90 miles off the coast of Florida brought the world to the brink of a full-scale nuclear conflict, a disaster. With communists now in Cuba, basements were converted into bomb shelters. Food was stockpiled, gas masks procured. Fire drills in school were exchanged for duck-and-cover simulations. In the end, the assassinations of JFK in 63 and his brother Bobby in 68 only heightened our senses to the growing communist threat and exacerbated many of our concerns with Washington. As America transitioned from the 60s to the 70s, there is no question that people were truly worried about the future and concerned with, with where things were rapidly heading, and there was just cause for that. Cities were ablaze by countercultural groups rebelling against the establishment. In fact, between January of 69 and April of 70, America sustained 4,330 bombings, which resulted in the deaths of 43 people. Racial tensions were hot. Societal norms had been flipped upside down. Faith in our institutions and our ruling class would even further diminish when we went from one decade to another, and in August 9th, 74, the unthinkable happened. President Richard Nixon was forced to resign from the office as a result of the, the Watergate scandal. By the end of the decade, the country would be facing gas shortages, double-digit inflation, and a hostage crisis, where 52 American citizens were being held in Iran against their will for 444 long days. The simple truth is that while the media may have celebrated Woodstock in 69. This cultural and sexual revolution had left a generation of hippies, short for hipsters, burned out, drugged up, and empty spiritually. Over the course of a 10-month period, between 1970 and 71, rock heroes Hendrix, Joplin, Wilson, and Morrison were all dead from drug overdoses. To make it all worse, on top of everything going on, there was this daunting fear that World War III could happen at any moment. And it's with this backdrop in mind that something really interesting took place within the American Christian church grappling with how to reach such a culture. 
Again, the fundamental question on everyone's mind as we went from 69 to 70, and really all through the 80s, centered on an uncertain future. Was the world going to come to an end? What would that look like? Would I be here for it? What happens when I die? I mean, gigantic existential questions were at the heart of it all. As we turn the page on the 60s, in 1970, Christian publisher Zondervan took a chance on a campus crusade for Christ evangelist by the name of Hal Lindsey. And their chance was publishing his first non-fiction titled The Late Great Planet Earth. Having spent a large portion of the 1960s ministering to students at Berkeley and UCLA, Lindsay was convinced that young people were hungry with this climate for a biblical understanding of the end times. He was right. The cultural appetite was enormous. According to an article written in the National Endowment for the Humanities titled, The Late Great Planet Earth Made the Apocalypse a Popular Concern, columnist Aaron Smith notes how people gravitated to this book, quote, in order to, be rec- in order to reconcile disturbing events in the news with predictions made in prophetic books of the Bible. The late great planet Earth made it appear that the world was completely under God's control and history was unfolding exactly as God intended. Readers were told that they had a special role in convincing others of the truth so they could accept Jesus as their Savior in time to be rescued from the impending apocalypse. The book was so successful, the New York Times says, the late great planet Earth was the best nonfiction book, best-selling, of the 1970s. Today, it's 10th on the most sold Christian books of all time, selling over 300, uh, selling more than 35 million copies. Because of the cultural interest concerning the end times, in light of what was taking place in the world, beginning with Hal Lindsey, the 1970s and 80s would see an explosion of Christian books and expositions dealing with what? The book of Revelation. In 1976, Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel would write a book on the rapture titled Snatched Away. In 1977, he then published Revelation Commentary, What the World is Coming to. A year later, in 1978, Smith would write a bestseller, In Times, a report on future survival. Everyone was captivated. With Sunday sermon series and revelation, drawing massive crowds across the country. Christians were more interested in the rapture and the study of eschatology than at any point in church history. But it wasn't just Christians. The world was also interested. In fact, this phenomenon is perfectly illustrated. And the reality that most of the gospel tracts during this time period centered almost entirely on selling the idea that accepting Jesus' salvation would ensure you go to heaven and not hell and be raptured so you would escape the end of the world and the apocalypse. That was the selling point. What's interesting about all of this is that by the mid-1990s, the cultural climate in America had undoubtedly changed. The Cold War was over. No one feared nuclear winter. Peace and security were felt at home. Racial tensions, there had been flare-ups, but were largely dissipating. There weren't riots in the streets. The economy was booming. 
In fact, the, the countercultural movement of the 90s, grunge, had become so intertwined with commercialism that it manifested very little change and is probably why Kurt Cobain, a believer, killed himself. Because no one was concerned about the future, the future of the world, which seems secure. And because people were more interested in how to get the most out of their life today, what happened? Christianity again pivoted. In 2000, Multnomah Books released Bruce Wilkerson's The Prayer of Jabez, subtitled, Breaking Through to the Blessed Life. Not to be outdone, in 2002, Zondervan again took another chance on an unknown California pastor named Rick Warren by publishing The Purpose-Driven Life. It quickly became a number one bestseller, topping the New York Times. Since then, you see much on the end times? No, not at all. Instead, we have self-help books topping the Christian charts. Seeker-friendly churches have become the trend. Over the past decade, very few churches even mention biblical prophecy, yet alone spend any time on it from the pulpit. Even evangelical tracts have changed. You see, they focus not on your future destiny, but on what? How accepting Jesus will improve your present life right now. As one can imagine, with such a shift in interest, books on the end times are no longer in vogue. And sermon series, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation, few and far between. So, why in the world are we going to spend the next few months working our way, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book? Here's why. Personally, I believe the events of the last seven months have created another dramatic shift in the things that people are really concerned about. Like the 60s, the future of this coming decade is uncertain. It's unclear. Today, we're all worried. We're worried about our jobs. We're worried about our health. We're worried about our children. We're worried about safety. All these things are polling. Antifa revolutionaries are once again rioting in the streets, setting fires in our cities. Well, I think we can all agree there's always room for improved policing. The reverse racism of BLM and the left pointing to white fragility as the core ill of our society is restricting any type of progress. Like People don't like having their children called racists simply because they were born a certain color. Culturally, there are forces seeking to transform our norms again through a new type of sexual revolution. You know, for the first time in human history, one's gender can be as fluid as one's sexual orientation, unless you already identify as being gay, and then it's impossible for you to ever change. Just last month, the largest state in our, uni our union, Californication, legalized pedophilia. I'm serious, according to a law passed by the Democratic legislature and quickly signed by Governor Gavin Newsom, as long as the sexual interaction is homosexual and occurs between a child and an adult no more than 10 years their senior, it's completely legal. 
And just wait, if you don't think it's coming, polyamory, where, two, where three or more consenting adults want to get married, that will be the next civil rights issue by the end of this decade, I promise. Like, there's no question that we are experiencing a revolution of sorts. I would call it a rot in our country. I mean, just think of what the number one best-selling song was this summer. Cardi B. Like, there's literally no part of the song I can quote. I can't even give you the... It's just the initials WAP, which stands for some really gross things. Like, not only does the song completely objectify women, the number one song, but the sexual content of the lyrics is so graphic, so, graphic, so perverse, it should be banned from the radio. Like, it's completely depraved, but it's the number one seller. You know, to add injury to insult, this is the same Cardi B, by the way, who's been granted more interviews with the presidential candidate Joe Biden than the largest news network on the planet. She's interviewed Joe Biden more than anyone at Fox News has been given opportunity for. That lady. And then there's the Netflix original movie, Cuties. Basically created and marketed for the sex offenders list. You know, as I relay these things that are weighing heavily on all of our hearts, I haven't even mentioned that we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Since the first cases started emerging in Wuhan late last year, COVID-19 has spread around the globe. Not only has it wrecked the global economy, but it's disproportionately targeted our most vulnerable, the elderly. Worldwide, 30 million have been infected with roughly a million people dying in six months. You know, as we all seek to make the best decisions for ourselves and our families, I don't know if you can relate to this, but there is a struggle. It's real. Like, what do I believe about any of these things? Like, who do I trust? How deadly is COVID really? Can we trust the numbers? Are they inflated? Are they not? Are they underrepresented? Where did this thing originate? Will a vaccine be reliable? Is it being rushed for the election? Does the, ki- the, the, does the disease affect kids or not? And to compound matters, the media lies, the who is corrupt, our elected politicians partisan, our local leaders drunk on power, illogic is everywhere. Protesting in the streets and shopping at Walmart is completely safe, but going to church, totally dangerous. Most alarmingly, most of our fundamental freedoms enshrined in the Constitution have been set aside under this guise of, of a public health emergency. It's crazy. And to make it all worse, the Center for Disease Control, who we should be trusting, their guidelines are ever-changing. Remember 15 days to flatten the curve like 215 days ago? You don't need to wear a mask. They don't work. You need to wear a mask or you're going to kill grandma. Masking up to get to your seat in a restaurant COVID-19 respects. And don't worry when you have to take it off to eat because COVID knows you got to eat, so it won't infect you. Warning, if you're in California, masks will not protect you from smoke particles that happen to be larger than coronavirus particles. You know, it's true that, that we might not be worried about the USSR, you know, except for the fact that, you know, I guess our president is... A Russian asset, they're going to throw the election. But aside from all of that, 
Like what about today, communist China, right? What was their role in the release and spread of the virus? Did they manufacture it? Was it accidentally released from a lab? Did it rise naturally in a wet market? Could the CCP have done more to stop the pandemic but chose to do nothing? Why did they, restri why did they restrict domestic travel from Wuhan but allow international travel? Was that intentional? Like, is there a conflict brewing? Are we going to witness another arms race? Maybe I'm paranoid, but maybe you can relate. Let's be real. People are afraid and worried. To make matters worse, the notorious RGB died on Friday, meaning Trump will try to get another Supreme Court nominee through the process. You think things are bad right now, just wait over the next 40 days. It's going to be crazy. There is this national uneasiness, I believe, to what the future looks like, to where all of this is heading. Like, like you can feel it. Is America really ready to embrace socialism? Like, what's going to happen with the election? And can we trust the polls when we have zero confidence in the media? Is there really a silent majority of Trump supporters or not? Like, will we even know who wins on November 3rd? Will there be fraud with mail-in ballots? Will lawyers muck up the process? Are forces trying to steal the election from the will of the people? Will Biden concede defeat? Would Trump accept results if they're not in his favor? You know, for the first time in my lifetime, our present lives, what's happened over the last six months, has created such an uncertainty within people about the future. Where are all these things heading? Where is my place in it? You know, even as Christians, it's only natural that when everything seems out of control, to question God's sovereign hand. God, where are you? Hello? Are you off the job? Did you take a bathroom break? What's going on? You know, friends, it's in these type of cultural moments in history, similar to what we saw in the 60s, that the book of Revelation is of critical, vital importance. Back in the 70s and 80s, while the book of Revelation was the correct place to turn, and the context of addressing what was going on in the culture, I believe the way the book was used by evangelicals was tragically misguided. Let me explain. Take, for example, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. You know, instead of presenting the gospel message of redemption from sin and the incredible transformation of the individual yielded through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the blessed doctrine of salvation ended up being marketed really as nothing more than a golden ticket that would grant you access to that great Willy Wonka factory in the sky. Like, what's a shame? And one of the reasons that eschatology has gotten such a bad rap is that the approach to reaching a culture genuinely afraid of the future was to use the book of Revelation to stoke those fears of the future. For years, the common refrain from pulpits across America was that not only were your fears justified, 
But let's get into the book of Revelation because you should be more afraid. The world was heading towards a reckoning. The Antichrist was at work. World War III was coming. The good news, in light of those things, what we call the gospel, was that wasn't that Jesus wanted to change your life. The good news was that Jesus wanted to save you from great tribulation. You see, in the end, Jesus was billed as your way out. An escape from Armageddon, your way to heaven the very moment things got bad on earth. Jesus was presented as a Savior, but a Savior from the coming apocalypse, not a Savior from sin. You know, during this time, evangelical tracts, they coined popular phrases you're likely familiar with. Get right or get left behind. Turn or burn. Real uplifting. Logically, for such a pitch to land, right? What was needed? What was necessary? Urgency. Like in order to foster this sense of urgency for people to accept Jesus, pastors, this is what they would do. They would take the current events of the day and read them into the Revelation narrative. The entire point was to show how the end, it was coming quicker than anyone might realize, and you didn't want to miss the rapture. You needed to get saved. Like even today, churches that were birthed in the 70s still do what's known as prophecy updates where pastors theorize, speculate, and bloviate as to where we currently stand on things. Tragically, in more extreme cases, in order to gin up urgency, considering your decision to choose Christ, pastors, including Hal Lindsey and, yes, Pastor Chuck Smith, they started date-setting. In his book, The 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon, Lindsey predicted, quote, the decade of the 80s, could very well be the last decade of of history as we know it. Pastor Chuck totally agreed. At first, the church was told the rapture would happen sometime during 1981. When that didn't happen, people were then given 88 reasons the rapture would happen in 88. Sadly, when that prediction also failed, new calculations made popular by another pastor named Chuck Missler and his book, The Millennial Bomb, placed the rapture happening in the year 2000. Aside from the fact prophecy updates and date setting used the book of Revelation, using the book of Revelation made Christians look stupid and foolish. It was during these years the church, I believe, had become so heavenly minded they were no longer of any earthly use. Like one of the criticisms within even the church community of those who studied the book of Revelation and believed in the rapture was that a church obsessed with leaving planet Earth had lost sight of their mission to planet Earth. In a sermon given many years ago on the Olivet Discourse, Pastor Mark Driscoll made this interesting observation. Let me read it for you. He says, There was a great outpouring and movement of the Holy Spirit in the 60s and 70s called the Jesus Movement. It was amazing. It was a miracle of God. A whole generation just seemed to get captured with the love of Jesus. And mass hippies and drug addicts and people who were sexually wayward met Jesus. And there was a a radical number of salvations. And a huge number of young people became Christians. Nonetheless, what happened with the Jesus movement is I believe it got off track, off course. People started to get really fascinated with the rapture and the end times and the second coming and all of these things. And all of a sudden, 
there was a love for Jesus, but there was more of a fascination around dates and times and events and circumstances. All of a sudden, leaders began making predictions about when Jesus would return and signs accompanying his coming. They were taking the Bible, taking the nightly news, combining them together, and it led to short-sightedness. Some key leaders, even some who love Jesus and are brothers in Christ, started predicting the end of the world and sending their followers into a frenzy. None of that's helpful. I tend to agree with them. Here's my point, and really the purpose of such a lengthy introduction. If you're waiting for us to get back to verses 1, 2, and 3, it'll happen next Sunday. In light of what's happening in our world today, what you're worried about, concerned about, I believe with all of my heart that the book of Revelation is more relevant than ever before if it's presented the way God intended it to be presented. Yes, the book will address the coming future, things that will shortly take place. And it's, it's the truth that it's undoubtedly honest as to the trajectory of where all these things will lead and how our world will end. There's no question that the book of Revelation can be scary at times. That said, you need to remember, this is what's important. The future is revealed in this book for one simple reason so that you might come to see Jesus in a new and radical way. It's not an accident. The book begins declaring itself to be what? Look at it again. The revelation of the apocalypse, the revelation of of the battle of Armageddon, the revelation of 666, the revelation of the Antichrist, the revelation of the rapture. No, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that what our culture needs most in these trying and difficult times is not a message of escape from a coming tribulation. Once more, it's totally inappropriate to use this book to stoke people's fears by conjuring up more things to be afraid of, all the while hoping to motivate you to some type of action. The gospel message doesn't need tricks. It's not based on escapism, nor is it fatalistic. Additionally, using the book of Revelation to make grand predictions as to how or when the future will occur, it's not helpful either. In fact, I think it's stupid. Like, I have zero intention, just so you know, in this series, to use foxnews.com as some sort of cipher by which we can understand end times prophecy. (laughs) I have a pet peeve, because you'll hear pastors say this. We are closer today to the rapture of the church than at any other time in human history. No crap, man. That's how time works. Guess what? We're closer now. Wait. We just got closer. Tomorrow, even closer. It's crazy. Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour. What was Jesus it's wrong for us to speculate on this. When it's all said and done, let me be as transparent as I can. It is my hope and prayer that you walk away 
from every single study that we have in this book, not scared, not freaked out, not worried about the future. I want you to leave every single study feeling as though and looking at the things we looked at, you came into a greater knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That you came to know Him a little bit more. That with each study, you gained a fresh insight. That He was revealed in a new way, a different way. Like when our series is complete, I don't care if you know more about the future or have your eschatology figured out. In fact, my goal isn't to explain all of the nuances behind the symbolism of Revelation or to connect all of the prophetic dots. It's not the point of the book anyway or why it's important. Instead, I want you to leave our travels through this book having a greater understanding of who Jesus is and a deeper love for Jesus as a result. Like in the end, we're going to study this book for in such a time as this, you know what we all need? We need a fresh revelation of the King.